welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, and that other part, and we talk about it all. And in this episode, we are continuing our discussion of Iserians in Chiridian of the West Marches by Sam Sorensen and Dom Liotti. And we have gotten through a hefty two and a half chapters. <laughs> Maybe. It's definitely two and two thirds for sure. <laughs> two and two thirds. Uh Yes. And so we are at the end of, I mean, well, you know, so one of our critiques, uh, one of our more critical evaluations here was the the way that the chapters are laid out. And they are just so full of information that they could have been split more liberally, more, more, more profusely, more whatever. Anyway, the chapters are very long and dense. And so we're in, we're at the end of chapter three. In the, it's called world building, and it's the dungeon part. And we got through almost all of it last time, but we are uh, going to cover the very end part of it about dungeon bosses, treasure rooms, uh, encounter design, and loot. And then we will move on to chapter four in this episode, maybe if 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 we get there, uh, which is called narrative. And it is not just me. When I say we, that means me, your your friendly co-host Sam Dillon, and my other co-host, Brandis. How are you tonight, sir? I'm well, Sam. Uh, very glad to be here tonight. Um, yeah, this chapter has been a, a real journey for us, and I hope that all of you listening along at home have been enjoying these conversations, because we sure have. Oh, yes. I mean, the, the conversations, from my perspective, have been just incredibly fun. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to dig into Dungeon Bosses. Um, good boss design on all the different necessary levels is a, a real art form within um, narrative design. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, so I think we touched on this a bit at the end of last episode. We, uh, we, we did. talked about yeah. the, the sidebar. Uh, well, and, yeah, let me get so the context of why we talked about that is we knew we were going to end the episode because it had already been running for a while, but we had mentioned early on that it's going to address something or it's going to talk about something in the boss section, and we wanted to hit that at the end just so that we didn't leave our listeners hanging. So we can revisit that if you want to. It's it was only the last one minute or something of of the episode. So, so the the sort of two big things that they're talking about here are boss difficulty. Um, which is sort of how hard of a fight the boss is within the dungeon and bosses as narrative. And there's a, a really great discussion in the, the blue sidebar about why bosses should be on the same like wavelength of difficulty as the rest of the dungeon. Um, I, I do find the argument persuasive that um, uh, it is a terrible feeling as a player to go through a dungeon, best of challenges, and then be, then be utterly crushed by the boss. Um, and, you know, the funny thing about me saying that is that uh, last night in playing Tomb of Annihilation, our GM informed us that we're about two sessions from the, uh, the, the final fight. So... 
I, I mean, the, the one part of this finale that's really been spoiled for me is it is not our job to actually beat a Sararak. Mm-hmm. That's lucky. Right. Yes. The ending of that, the in the ending of that book is so good. Like we're, we're a very tough ninth level team, but yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we, we ended the session in the middle of that council fight at the end of uh, level five, the wardrobes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, we, we were halfway through that. It's great. It's just, we had so much fun. Yeah. It's, that is a great adventure. It's a great adventure. And, um, and, and and the and so so that actually that 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 idea of the reason you're in the dungeon is to complete a task, but that task for Tomb of Annihilation is not in this spoilers, right? You already said it, but spoilers, yeah. right? Uh, it's not necessarily to kill the main boss because the main boss in Tomb of Annihilation is a Sararak, the uh, the very famous Lich, right? Um, who has been part of the D&D game since the very early days. But that kind of speaks to what this section is talking about, because the idea that there is a boss that you don't have to beat to still complete the dungeon and, and fix the problem or resolve the challenge is, is an interesting idea, and it kind of dovetails into this idea of having the boss be at the correct challenge level for the party to be able to overcome the boss. Right. It's kind of the get out of jail free card, right. To make it so that, well, that might be true for most bosses. What's in this blue sidebar here, that it should be relatively the same challenge level as the rest of the dungeon. And therefore it, there is an expectation of being able to defeat it, but the get out of jail free card is unless there is actually a different goal. If the goal is not to defeat the boss in the dungeon, if the goal is something else and the party can complete that goal without having to face that, that challenging boss, which isn't really at the level necessarily of the dungeon, then, then that's kind of okay. As long as, and we keep saying this about this book the whole time, as long as it's telegraphed that yep. the choice to make Okay, and and you said it. You said it just a few minutes ago. You already know that you're probably not going to face that person or defeat that person, right? Right. And that's okay because you know the task is a different, has a different goal, right? And so as long as that's telegraphed, that's okay. Despite what this actual page says, which is your boss should be winnable. Right. right. And I love all the different possible ways of shaking up a fight doing something different with it. Mm-hmm. Um, like right now in my wife's Elden Ring playthrough, uh, she is like, working on beating Star Scourge Radon, which won't mean anything to you, Sam, but for the benefit <laughs> of uh, you and our listeners, uh, is this incredibly obscenely high damage boss mm-hmm. uh, for the point in the game where you're likely to encounter him. The thing is, uh, you can summon the same characters to help you over and over and over again. Mm. So as long as you don't get hit, you don't have to personally deal a single point of damage to him. I don't think. 
Um, okay. So it's a, it's a really unusual approach to a fight. Now it's still kill this boss, right? But it's you know use the the tools and characters that you've met in the game up to this point, as well as some others, to win this fight in an unconventional way. And this is a boss that I mean, if your character name is Let Me Solo Her then fine you can <laughs> that's a whole different story if you're not familiar right. with you let me have a lower story um but uh sure i'm sure that dude can like go melee start scourged on and be fine ordinary mortals do not go beat star scourged on in a heads-up fight that's not how it works right um right and so my point here is just uh, we don't have to kill the boss. We just have to succeed in doing some other task, maybe before the boss does, you know, kills us or completes some competing task of their own is one among many ways to shake up a boss fight into something other than what in MMO design gets called tank and spank. Right. 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 And this even talks about that that basic concept of tank and spank it basically says in here look uh a good boss fight should be memorable and that means that you can't just you know set five a five person party a five pc party against one enemy because no matter how good that boss is uh unless they're super duper uber overpowered which they're telling you not to do here unless they are super duper overpowered they're not going to win against five individuals if it's just them Right. right. So you have to do things to spice up that encounter. You either give them minions or you give them, you know, uh, some sort of uh, environmental uh, advantage or you do something right. right? But uh, a single enemy in the room uh, is going to be defeated because right. the action economy of the game is such that, well, even with even with legendary resistances, right, you're going to get a situation where eventually you have drained out all the resources of that enemy and they get far fewer attempts to uh, damage the party or, or affect the party or drain the party's resources than the party will get because there's five times more of the party than there is of the enemy of a single, single boss. Right. Well, right. And a very casual study of just expected attacks per round makes this obvious, right? Um, you, you don't see a lot of legendaries, Right. It's obvious, but it's one of those things where I think because so many, and maybe not recent, but so many of the sort of older computer games and even computer games that aren't like basic, you know, D&D related, but for example, something like, a, you know, a, um, oh, geez, I don't know, uh, like Sonic the Hedgehog or Mario, sure. right? You, you have the on the boss screen, when you finally meet the boss, it's you against that one boss, right? You're one character against that one boss, right? Right. But that pre pre presents an idea of, oh, the one boss is the one boss. And it doesn't matter that our party now has five people. It's the one boss against that, right? So there's this sort of gestalt almost feeling of, ooh, when we get to the big bad, they're so big and powerful, they're going to try to face us alone. And while it seems obvious that we say that's not necessarily how it should go, especially given in fifth edition that the action economy, sometimes it's just good to lay that out. And that's what they do here. 
there are a ton of different ways to to think about this, and they all sort of amount to, um, yeah, a, a single legendary creature is in, in 5e going to have an insurmountably difficult time uh, challenging four to five PCs. Like, once you start thinking about, okay, so each of those PCs has extra attack or the or whatever their class's fifth level damage spike is. Um, and sure, I've got multi-attack, and it might give me three or even four attacks, and then I've got legendary actions that give me three att- Wait, that adds up to seven. Right. And they've got the equivalent of eight to ten. Hang on a cotton pick in minute. <laughs> Something is not in my favor here anymore. Yeah. And some of that gets leveled out with, you know, the boss manages to crowd control one of the PCs or a lair action manages to hinder a PC so much that they functionally lose their turn. But it still amounts to, yeah, no, they're not going to have the edge on action economy. Um, some some minions. That's the most classic of all ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other approaches, like uh, maybe there's something generating a force shield around the boss, so the boss is invulnerable to damage until you break the force shield. So you've got to find that generator and break it mm-hmm. while they're, mm-hmm. you know, kicking the crap out of you or whatever. Yeah. Like there's a ton of different ways to throw. A, a, a wrench in the works here and basically they're all great if just used with understanding and not making the the PCs solve really complicated puzzles while they're busy losing hit points right um, players who are busy losing hit points don't think clearly um, and that's normal like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anxiety is not a good problem solving uh, right. Yes. Bit of neurochemistry for us. So, yeah. Um, but that that all goes to boss difficulty and boss solutions other than uh, straight up stabbing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying never have a boss of straight up stabbing. I'm saying. Uh, that no, actually should at, be the rare case, not the common case. Yeah, at low levels, a boss just stabby stabby is great, and it's great fun, and usually it's okay because at lower levels, that's what the party can do. Depending on you know what game you're playing and all that, but you know what edition and whatnot. But so my one thing is start teaching them early that there are going to be variant strats. Right. Exactly. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is it's stabby stabby is fun. But it's just like anything else. You want it to be in a moderate amount, right? Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. that's all you get ever, then it's not as fun. Um, at the same yep. time, sometimes it's fun. So you don't want to just completely throw it off the table because you think it's passe or whatever. Like yep. you can mix some of that in. But at the same time, you're telegraphing other situations and presenting other aspects of how this could go that might give the party the idea of being more creative or understanding that later on stabby stabby is not going to be enough for well, future. Right. Situation. And we specifically talked about things like having a, a bouncer at the front gate of the dungeon that was right. functionally a, a level check for the PCs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, if you can beat this guy comfortably, then proceed to the dungeon appropriately. Right. If you get bounced, that's on you. Right. Um, 
that should be a straightforward fight most of the time mm -hmm. because its purpose is to be a level check. Right. Now, it's also okay, like we talked about, to have a boss that you're supposed to pull away and bypass, but mm -hmm. let your players know somehow, signal to them somehow, what is going on in this campaign because they actually won't thank you if they trick the level check mini boss and then just get face rolled by everything in the dungeon. Mm -hmm. um, it, it would be sort of like going into the Tomb of Annihilation, uh, successfully finding the waterfall, maybe even getting down the waterfall safely, but suddenly you're sixth or seventh level on the bottom level of the dungeon. Right. Friends, <laughs> you goofed. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's that's boss difficulty. Uh, bosses as narrative is more important, I would say, because these are the, the big faces of your story, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, I, I could talk for weeks about how important it is to sell the boss's story before you fight them the first time. And in most campaigns, I'm in favor of encountering the boss multiple times before the final showdown. In a West Marches campaign, I'm much more inclined to just accept that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, it could, if you are, if there is a region uh, that has a, a rumored sort of overlord. Sure. And there are smaller pieces of the region that have mini bosses, so to speak, right? Sure, sure. And sure. that and that you could actually encounter one of the mini bosses as they were parlaying with the overlord. Right. And so I'd, you get exposed to the overlord and then right. So there are ways to do it. Right. I'm just checking once again, you're not playing Elden Ring, is that correct? No, I've never. Because, yeah, that that's yeah. That's just stand. <laughs> I mean, you know, but yeah. because I'm used to this style of game, like that's the stand. That's a standard way to show. Yeah, the, the region overlord bosses are right, right. A, a wonderful thing in Elden Ring, and um, I would definitely recommend sort of breaking your West Marches up into you know, county-sized regions, and then giving them these overlords. I think that's right. a really strong play. And, you know, in the in terms of this book, that would be, okay, here's a faction, right? And so the faction consists of, there are these smaller factions within the mini regions, and then the overlord would be an overarching faction who has influence in each of the regions, right? So using the terminology from this book, that's how you would do that. You would turn those into factions, and then the faction leaders would have different roles and different goals and motivations. So, yeah. you know, and, the, and that's, you know, but, but that's the way to do it. If you want to keep, if you want to make it so that you can show the party, the big boss at a time when it's not appropriate for them to fight the big boss. So that now you have the recurring big boss. That's the way to do it. This is the easiest way. There's many, many other ways, yeah. right? But yeah, yeah. that's the easiest, most straightforward way. And the one that's probably easiest to telegraph, right? Um, but yep. yes, I, I agree that the narrative is probably more. And so just to be clear to the audience, we're not talking about the, the boss's narrative when they're in the fight. Oh, what do, how do we narrate this boss doing its behavior or whatever? No, no. We're talking about 
telegraphing information about the boss to the party via the things they find previously in that region or on their way to whatever dungeon or as they're exploring someplace, they find information, learn information. We're going to get to this in the next set. That's why this is at the end of this section, because it's going to flip right over into the narrative lore part of the game as well. But that's that's how this works. We're not we don't mean how do you narrate this boss fighting the group at the end when they're fighting. We mean the narrative of the boss's place in the West marches. Um, and how does the party learn about that? One of the really great tricks that you see in really everything from literally every FromSoft game on through um, you know, your Bioshock is to make all of the really important bosses specifically people who relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Like they have their own story together and you are the intruder in it. And uh, you know, those relationships have probably fallen apart in part because of the boss's evil natures. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you're going to come through and kind of kick them over one by one because they've all done these horrible things that, you know, justify your actions, I- including ongoing horribleness that they inflict on, on people around them. Right. Um, and. So I think that connecting bosses like that is a, a real efficiency tool for lore delivery, right? Because you, you, know, you get one fact that tells you something about two different people. Congratulations. Amazing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a, it's a huge tool in, in all your FromSoft games. Um, and uh, I'm not even scratching the surface of all the games that, that do things like that. Um, it's incredibly well done in Breath of the Wild, uh, where, in fact, the, the those bosses, well, there, there's, you know, basically lesser Calamity Ganons, but the other bosses that you're freeing from him, uh, though you're not fighting them directly, are your old friends. So you're the one with history with them. It's just that you've forgotten the history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. brilliant love it right right um great great uh bit of lore delivery trick and i mean i'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because this is all gonna be chapter four content also mm-hmm. sure but I, I really can't say it enough times right um well and and to be fair you know no matter how well this book is laid out or how poorly it's laid out no judgment on any of the direction here the fact is that all of these sections should be dovetailing together so it makes sense that as we talk about one piece of this it's very important it's also touching on the stuff we're going to get to in the next chapter if it didn't do that that's where there would be a problem right right? but all of this fits very nicely together in in a sort of intertwined interlinked interlaced set of information and mechanics that that fill out the entire sort of setting and the way that the game is supposed to run so if you weren't saying well i'm going to get to this i'm maybe getting ahead of myself i'd be more worried than if you are saying that yep i sort of i think the metaphor i might use is um thinking of it like a lot of small brush strokes to create the picture Mm 
mm-hmm. including sort of foundational layers and then additional brushstrokes over that that like bring up more highlights like you're not doing this all in one uh, fell swoop of exposition mm-hmm. you're delivering lots of little pieces of exposition to build this in your players minds right and as a as a key reminder for west marches you're doing it over and over again because it, your five players listening are half to a quarter let's mm-hmm. say of your uh target population right right uh and- but as soon as you get your players delivering your lore to other players for you mm-hmm. victory is yours Right. And that's what I was going to say is when they go back to the home base and they start exchanging stories and lore, that's Uh where, that's where your lore gets to take on a life of its own. And even if they start exchanging the lore and they give wrong information, oh, well, like that's right. That's, that's, that's how it is. Right. Yep. And that's, it's just like the idea of never telling them whether their map is correct or not, right? This right. is what they heard, and this is the information they're providing. Now, it's the DM's responsibility to always be honest when they are providing the right. information. But when the players are talking to each other, it is not the DM's responsibility to correct them. That I, is a hard... I'm, I'm always going to feel two ways about that, just because, yeah. man, this is, our, this is the character's whole world, and a small part of the player's world for right. the, for the character. It was, you know, 24 to 72 hours ago for the player. It was a, a week to two months. Like I'm always right, going to feel but, a couple of ways about that. Right. But if you're doing the job well and you keep spouting this lore to them, you keep providing them right. information. And that's where that repetition comes in. When you say over and over and over, you don't mean once to player A and then once to player B and once to player C and once to player D and once to player F and once to player M and once to player P, right? No, it's once to player A, B, C, D, and then another time to player A, B, C, D, and then another time to player A, B, C, D, and then the next session, once to players C, D, E, F, and then another time to player C, D, E, F, and then a third time to play, right? So that repetition, if they still get it wrong, that's on them, not you. And, because and ultimately, as long as you're I agree repeating, with that. I just, I, I do think there's, there has to be a little bit of space for kindness from the DM, right? So here's the thing is, I don't disagree with you, but if you're, if you're giving them various tidbits of information basically the same way every time and they only wrote it down once and every other time you give it they nod and go "Uh uh-huh oh yeah we've heard this before and they don't adjust their notes i mean you can't go through and correct their notes what what it's really indicating is that pc has a particular conception of the information that they've been given and that's what they would project in that setting that's what uh, yeah. they're telling the other PCs. Well, I'm, I guess the only situation that concerns me is like, okay, after this boss fight, we learned a thing that like revealed the clutch secret. Mm-hmm. And then like, it was just complicated enough that we remembered it wrong or whatever. 
I, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm I'm thinking about like right, but then oh, if, oh but, yeah, right, the but, session was running till midnight, and I was just tired. Okay, sure, but okay, that's one time. But if well, right, you, if but they the, if they get the information seven more times, but when it's I, I don't know, there are going to be some pieces of lore that it is hard to justify reiterating. That's what I'm that's what I'm getting at. Well, so here's the thing, right? Like there's a, so I guess maybe we should draw a line here because there's a difference between lore that your PC would know because they grew up in the world, right? And they're probably not going to get wrong. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. That you can correct them on because you can just say as the DM, look, your player, you would know that the mayor of the town is John Smith not nancy smith right like sure. you like you would know you know that right or you know that the last mayor was nancy smith and then her now her husband after she died he took over so he's the mayor, right you would know that you're not going to think oh it's uh, you know john jacob jingleheimer smith right so that that you tell them even if they get it wrong you tell them right because the, their player knows the pc knows but when it's something that they find out and you're te- you're telegraphing to them five different times if they're still getting it wrong and that's what they tell the other PCs. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I get where you're coming from. I do, but that's part of, you know, just like in this, the DM has to change their behavior, right? This book is saying as the GM, as the referee, as, as the person who's running this West March's game, you have to change your behavior. You have to start telegraphing everything. You have to give them all the information. And the deal is you're doing it honestly. You are never lying to them. You're telling them the truth yeah, about sure. what's going on. And that's the agreement. And the agreement is also that you're telegraphing, telegraphing, telegraphing. And that's the player's that have to decide what's important and what they want to remember and what they want to get right. And it's not your job to tell them what they should be getting right. It's your job to just be honest with them. So just like the DM has to change their behavior from the sort of more traditional story-based game with a, with a, uh, you know, more, more of a plot and more of an overarching thing, you know, whatever the players also have to learn how to play in the West marches, right? And so I'm not saying there's not a negotiation that needs to happen at least early on about, okay, well, let me tell you this, but I'm, I want you to get used to doing this so that I don't have to correct you later. Like I, I will stop correcting you at some point in time, unless it really is just something that your PC would know because they live there. Yeah. Like my, so a lot of where I'm coming from is specific to, uh, thinking about one of the games I play in mm-hmm. where we had to miss um, a month and a half, two months of games. Mm-hmm. And when we jumped back in, I was struggling more than usual, even though I take notes to get the whole thing straight in my head again, um, because like what's going on, why we're doing it, what we're trying to do, uh, who wants what from who kind of stuff mm-hmm. is just complicated enough that it falls apart if I don't think about it for long enough, right? Mm-hmm. And it, are you are you running that game or are you? No, this is game? what I'm playing. This is what okay. I'm playing it. Um, this is this is Colin's game, um, and the lore is wonderful and fascinating. And just we had to stop in the middle of a dungeon run and. Um, my brain fell out my ear. I don't know what to tell you. Um, like stuff was written down and I couldn't 
pick back up where I was and remember what I needed to do with the place mm-hmm. where we were. And Colin was great about it. Colin gave us enough rehash to pick it back up and go on with a great session. Mm-hmm. Um, but so let me stop you there. That's part of the reason why at the end of every session, you're in a West Marches game. Uh, your group right. goes back to town. Right? So, so I don't think that the fact that we're in the middle of a dungeon was essential to that. I think that Colin is just running complicated enough plots that. Sure, but uh, okay, but then sometimes we need a refresher. That's all right. But okay, but then that also speaks to the fact that there's no real plot in the West Marches game. Right, there um, is no overarching plot. Remember mm-hmm. the party. Whoever wants to get together and run a mission decides what they want to go investigate. Well, so the thing is, there are there are factions that I think the difference between a um, faction interaction having its own complexities and an overarching plot mm-hmm. is largely semantic to me. Okay, sure, but as the DM, though, right? So I, I so let me well, let me start with this. Colin, of course, did the right thing, right? Like I'm I'm not saying that he did it wrong, but what I'm saying is that game you're playing in is is not a West Marches game. It's not. And the and the and the whole premise of the West Marches game is that it's not always the same set of PCs every time. And sure. you go out on an individual mission every session that you're in, you go on a mission and you come back. And whatever you, part of what you gained in that mission is information. And that information becomes if the PCs decide to tell the rest of the group that work at that headquarters or wherever their base is, if they decide to tell everybody else, that's what they tell them. And then they don't necessarily go pick up that same track next time. The next group that plays might decide to go investigate something else, right? And in that case, there's not really a case there of lost lore other than, well, nobody picked up that thread to go you know, look at what's happening with that other faction now this time. And that was a choice. And it wasn't a wrong choice just because nobody picked it up. It just was the choice. Yeah. Right. So I guess what, I, what I'm what i saying is I understand what, you, what you're talking about in, in that game you're talking about. That is rough. I play in a game where we only play once a month and sometimes we miss a session. So we don't, we only play like once every six weeks. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is hard as a player. Even if I take really good notes, it's hard to remember what's going on. I totally get that. But that's, that's part of what West marches gets rid of because at the end of every session, you are done with that with whatever you were doing, even if you didn't go all the way through the dungeon, because it's got seven levels, your plan is not necessarily to go through all seven levels, but you found information and you came back. If you get through seven levels in one session, how? Well, I mean, yeah. Okay. We played all weekend, whatever. Right. I mean, I I don't know. (laughs) I'm just saying like, yes, that, but that's exactly my point is that when you went into that dungeon, you found information and you might've learned about something, some other weapon or some other artifact or something that could help you defeat the big bad, and in the next mission, though, is different PCs, and they didn't necessarily want to, you know, follow up on that. They're going to go do something else this time. And so you haven't actually lost anything, right, other than you didn't go on that next mission yet at that same place, Yep. which is very different from a, a sort of more traditional, what we now think of as a more traditional game, where there is usually some sort of overarching plot. Yes, all the factions are complex, and it's not that they're not complex in the West Marches. It's just that 
not every session is based on the same enemy faction and the same region and the same main goal. Whereas in a more traditional game with a, um, with a more sort of set overarching plot and a set, uh, set roster of players and NPCs, you are always like that game that I only play and we will, we play every once a month or once every six weeks, there's an overarching story. And we don't meet up every six weeks and go, oh, what do we want to do today? Oh, I don't know. Let's go over here and over there. No, we have to say, okay, what happened? What was the last thing we learned? How, what are we going to do to act on that? Let's decide what we're going to do that matters to the actual storyline that we're running, which is mm-hmm. different from West Marches. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. Um, so in any case, that's our dissertation on yeah. uh, lore <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Uh, seriously, you have to manage it. Right. Um, and, and and seriously, like it, it really, this actually is a good conversation to have because it really does highlight one of the main differences that they talk about early on that I think doesn't really get exposed until you actually play in a West Marches game where it's a different set of PCs going on every session. Right. right? And just the, I wonder how you can help groups actually engage with each other in, you know, out of session downtimes to trades, rumors, and secrets. Uh, I think that, uh, I I said this before, that's going to work for some players, not for others. It depends on how extremely online they are to some extent. Mm -hmm. Like, if if you just have the team's discord and some people are engaging other people's uh, other people aren't then that's that's rough right. i mean when we ran the larp uh there was a google hangout because this was in the uh, absolute heyday of g plus and right. the google hangout where players were constantly swapping lore they'd picked up and making plans and so on and like the the hard truth is that people who weren't in that channel, everyone was invited. The invite mm-hmm. was trivial to come right. by. Anyone who wasn't able to engage in that channel because of how their their day job worked or whatever, um, was not going to have as much fun. And yeah, this was a player driven thing. We can't solve it. It's inappropriate for. Mm-hmm. It would have been inappropriate for us to solve it, but you know. Being yeah. engaged there was one of the best things you could do to enjoy the game more. And that's going to be the same way for players who are more able to engage with the lore um, between sessions of West Marches. And I think that there are ways to try to, like, for example, you can have a Discord where you have a channel that is uh, not dedicated to a conversation, but is just dedicated to, you know, my player. Leighton the Lucky learned this and just one statement. And it's not for discussion. It's not for whatever. It's just he went into this place and learned this fact, right? And then then now you have a repository of lore that was learned, right? Even if some of it is is repetitious because the next the next group went and they learned something very similar. And now that P, another PC, different PC is coming in and saying, oh, Gorm the Devout learned this. Right. Yep. Um, and that's and then you can also have a conversation channel where people interact and whatnot, because that's really fun. But 
you can have a sort of lore repository from the PC's perspective, right? Sure. Not the players I mean, talking about there it. There was also a campaign the- wiki that was mm-hmm. entirely player managed. Yeah. Right. Where they did exactly that. Right. Just uh, right. that well, was sure. going to be yeah. another thing that people either could engage with. Mm-hmm. because sure. of how their day jobs worked or not. Right. Of course. Yeah. And and there's no mistaking that the more you can engage, the more fun it usually is. Right. Of course. For sure. Um, but I mean, just in terms of there's never going to, you're right. There's never going to be an, a response, you know, a, a real quote answer to that because just some people are not going to ever have time. Right? right. Some people have lives where they've got so many responsibilities and so many things on them that they literally can only talk about the game on game night. When they're yep. sitting there playing the game, that's their gaming time. And all the rest of the time is to deal with their real life stuff. And that's okay. Um, but I think part of the other thing that happens in a West Marches game is if you do have some sort of lore repository, you can at least ha- you can have a way to give them those. Okay, well, the three pieces of lore that the PCs in the, in the headquarters have been talking about are these three things. And so now we're going on this mission so that that person who hasn't been contributing throughout the week or hasn't been able to spend time on it throughout the week at least gets the update of the actual lore right and yep. that makes west marches work because it doesn't rely on people talking about the game every day in the middle of sessions or in between sessions yep agreed all right so should we move on let's move on <laughs> folks we've done one page <laughs> it's not a full page there's a lot of art on that page stop <laughs> It's good art. It's a really cool spider with uh, no argument. With some uh, some some weird like ring uh, ring oh, man, the, force field or something. The the midair portal thing on the next page is also yeah, yeah. really cool. very evocative. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, I, I saw uh, my wife's character go to that location in Elden Ring. So congratulations <laughs> to uh, Sam and uh, yeah. Dom. You guys are obviously um, stealing. Like concept art years ahead of time from yeah. I mean, how, what, how when did Elden Ring get released? Was it this year? Uh, it, two months ago. Okay, yeah. So I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so next up is treasure rooms, um, and this is, is a, you know, an interesting point about basically just treasure distribution and the way you think about. Um, reward, right? Uh, the, the big payoff moment. Um, so let's actually define, I'm, I'm going to read the first paragraph for the audience. Yeah, please. Um, because treasure room doesn't just mean, oh, a room in a dungeon that happens to have a treasure in it. Uh, so after they kill the kobolds, they find a magic wand or something. It literally means this. Uh, one of the common challenge, uh, sorry, one of the common types of challenge challenges unique to the West Marches is the treasure room. A treasure room is a singular encounter or perhaps a short set of encounters that is of significantly greater challenge than the rest of the dungeon, but contains significantly greater treasure. Most often, this is simply an exceptionally difficult combat encounter, but might also include a physical aspect such as being underwater or having to go across a large gap. So, um... The interesting thing about this is that it's right after the boss monster where they say the boss monster should be relatively equal level to the rest of the dungeon. But the treasure room can be super duper high 
challenge because it's yep. going to have such a huge reward. Right. It, it amounts to saying, uh, make treasure really lumpy. Right. Well, the thing, the thing that is, that is similar between these two concepts is there's also a narrative aspect to the treasure, right? They, in other words, this isn't a room they stumble upon in the middle of the dungeon. They mm-hmm. have heard of this room, right? With the sigil on the door or with the shield symbol on the wall next to it or with the, you know, in the whatever tower with the glowing purple thing or whatever, right? Like there is some narrative around this where they have heard about this prior to engaging it. I think that you also want treasure to like be be lumpy, you know. You want to um, have some uh, occasional surprise rewards. Oh, hey, you know this was an ordinary fight, but uh, was a little higher treasure than usual. But then, like this is sort of defining uh, an area that you reach for, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where you you know you're taking a higher risk. This is in a lot of ways sort of um, going after a bank fault, just in a world without actual mm-hmm. banks. Right. Um, like I I like the the ideas that are getting laid out here, but uh, I think that here again the section on narrative is really really important. It needs to feel naturalistic to your story and your world. Um, uh, you know, why is there a single significant challenge guarding it? Uh, why is the best loot in the dungeon only found in this chamber? If not answered well, treasure rooms will feel arbitrary. They feel too gamey, too unexplained, too placed there solely for the challenge. That's a great set of points. Right. Um, and um, I don't know. One of the things in playing through Tomb of Annihilation is that there are a lot of places we could go to get a few more pieces of treasure that we bail on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because we don't want to engage that risk. Right. And a big part of that is that in Tomb of Annihilation, treasure, a lot of treasure is just nice to have. Mm-hmm. Um, you're there to you know, defeat the soulmonger and end the death plague. Right. Uh, like, Running up my score at the end of the game feels a little, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Right. Like, we talk about how there is enough to spend money on in 5e. There's literally no concept of a way to spend this money mm-hmm. within the span of the part of the campaign I care about. Right. And we might have some epilogue sessions where I get to sort of roll around in our loot and feel great about it, but that's not emotionally the hook I've been set up to care about. Right. I'm not and upset about that. That is just what it right. is. Yeah. That's just a fact of the fifth edition game. Right. Well, um, and specifically and Tomb of Annihilation. Yeah. Right. That particular adventure. Right. right. But also of the fifth. I mean, so here's the thing too. Remember that there, there are a set of editions where gold equals XP. So, When you're talking about that, part of this arises from that concept, right? That it's nice to get a boost of a huge cache of of valuables at some points. It's not common, 
right? But it's nice to get that boost of a huge cash because that gives you a really nice padding to your XP. And it, it makes you feel like you're making progress and making your character more capable of doing things, right? So this kind of arises out of that idea. Um, but the other thing that it, about this in, in this particular book is the idea of, you know, remember earlier I said, well, the boss difficulty matters and it matters about narrative. It's also true that it could be that the boss is the boss is actually more difficult. So you might not follow their advice about making the boss the same difficulty as the rest of the dungeon. However, as you're going through the dungeon, you learn about a special item, a special artifact or weapon or or set of armor or something that will bring down that boss's, you know, ability to to basically not be killed by you. Right. Right. Not I mean, be defeated. That's, that's classic Mega Man right. right there. Classic Mega Man. And so you and so now you have to go find the treasure room and you have to go seek out clues about where its location is and what exactly is in there. And is this one the one that we're looking for? And how do we get in there? And then you defeat that and then you go back to the major boss in that other place. And now right. you have the equipment and resources to actually make it an encounter that is equal to your abilities. And I mean, I absolutely believe that West Marches is going to be a game that makes cash matter than uh, much more than sort mm. of bog standard 5e. Sure. Other than 5e that does get into a even sort of domain play-ish mode. If you can get your players to do that, then making cash matter is easy. Right. Um, there's one other thing I want to say about the whole West Marches model of player characters. Mm-hmm. That has been a big thing in Arakesh, uh, which is with all of these characters, you get to hand out loot for many times as many people, mm-hmm. right? And like whoever's there gets gets paid. Maybe also treasure gets passed around, but you don't need to be thinking about I've got to hand out enough treasure for these five people to have enough cool stuff over the course of. 10 or 20 levels. Right. No, mm-hmm. it's enough treasure for 20 characters or 40 characters or whatever to have cool stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't each need to have, you know, three attunement items. Um, they don't all need the most amazing stuff, but they should get cool stuff. You can afford to make it rain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, I don't think they quite touch on that here, but it's been one of my major learning moments in Arakesh. So I just wanted to uh, want to hit on that. I mean, I what I was going to say is, you know, there is also another element of just the idea of of walking into a, a, a place that is just filled with a dragon's hoard worth of gold and treasure and fancy items is just fun. Oh, for sure. Right. You're not doing it every session, right? And so the fact that it's in moderation and the fact that it's not not common means that when it does happen, you're like, oh, this is great. <laughs> like, this is just a really cool scene because yep. it signifies that the party has bested something and they they are capable of doing something and they found a really cool place that no one else in this entire area has found. 
And that's really fun. That's part of the fun of the game. Even if it's there's no gold for XP, and even if they've already all got magic items, and even if, you know, whatever, like, it's still really great. I mean, if you want to see your players go, holy crap, have them walk into a room that has a giant 20 foot by 20 foot pit that's 50 feet deep and just full of gold coins. And it's not an illusion. Um, but you know what I mean? So like, what are those, what are they going to do? There's an enormous pit of gold. Uh, yeah, for do? sure. Like that, that is an interesting scene just in itself. Are they going to try to carry it all out? Are they going to try to parcel it out? Are they wary of it? Do they think there might be something in the bottom of it? Is it a yep. coin golem? Like, like who knows, right? Like this is right. Yep. It could be a coin mimic where suddenly you touch one piece and it turns, you know, like who knows what it is, but if it really is just a giant 20 by 20 foot, 50 foot deep pit full of gold coins. Oh, son. Well, you've got a lot of gold now, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? And who's supposed to be guarding it? And how come you found it? And like, there's all sorts of questions around that, that make it like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Absolutely. For many more reasons than just, oh, we're rich now. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I would, I would just suggest that, um, if there's anyone in there who is golden, magnificent, tremendous, unaccessibly wealthy, mighty, terrible, stupendous, tyrannical, impenetrable, chiefest and greatest of calamities, and your magnificence, I really hope you have the ruling ring with you. That would really be nice right now. <laughs> yes, that because he might be, nice. be under all yes. of that still. Yes, he, just he could basking. be sleeping under it like a blanket. Yes, um, <laughs> but I'm just saying. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, ready to move on? Uh, yeah, uh, I think that this is well covered. Um, like, there are some other really good notes here that make this a good read, but mm -hmm. uh, like, it's hard for us to say a lot about compartmentalization without just doing a verbatim read. So, next we get to encounter design, and and this is trying to accomplish. Um, 40 years of hard-won lessons in one page. <laughs> yeah. Good luck, mate. Like, it's a really good page, but woof. Yeah. I mean, so this is where, you know, one of my, one of my um, complaints or criticisms about the first half of this chapter or the first dungeon part of this chapter was that they give this advice, but they don't really have a good example. And um, and that's true of this section as well, where, um, you know, they, the example that they had, they do provide a set of examples of, for many of these things in the back of the book in, in the appendices, but the example of a small dungeon that they provide doesn't actually do much of these things that they say are so important, right? So it talks about using darkness and visibility rules uh, to make things interesting. It talks about having water and terrain changes to make things interesting. It talks about verticality, right? Do you, do you have to climb? Is there a chasm to cross? What's going on in that area? Um, and so, uh, and, and, and um, you know, giving alternate goals for a particular, uh, a, a, a particular scene, you know, there's, there is, uh, you can have a combat going on, but actually the goal is not necessarily to kill that thing, but yet to, to distract it so you can accomplish some other task or to hold off the horde while you're opening the door that will then close behind you and protect you or whatever, right? There's all sorts of ways to do these, but it's just one page and yep. it's the slightest hint 
of how to make these things important. And then there's no example right. of this like, stuff. My, my very sincere advice here is to uh, treat each paragraph of this as a checkbox you need to check off in your design. You're not going to necessarily check every single one, but if your dungeon doesn't check off at least you know, a solid third of these as something you've taken into account and done something cool with, then you have not done enough cool. You need mm-hmm. to go back and add another thing. Right. That, that would be my advice. Yeah. Um, because they are all good points. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are going to have to do some thinking on your own to get into them. This is written. This page to me might be one of the most aggressively written for the high intermediate to, you know, senior advanced DM to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you need to already be fairly well along in your thinking and just getting reminders from this um, because it isn't going to be the whole conversation on right. all these things right. to me, um, which again, doesn't make it bad. Just boy, <laughs> another uh, 32 page signature would have really right. been wonderful here and they couldn't, I get it. It's Kickstarter. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have the money you have, whatever. Sure. Just um, th- this is really good stuff that I've always wanted more from. And I, I agree with you. It's Kickstarter and they couldn't add many more pages, but they also didn't do a lot of this in their example dungeon. Right. Oh, I get you. I get you. So they they wouldn't have to necessarily. Yes. add. I mean, they could write a whole new book about this, just this one page expanding on it all. Right. And yep. add in some of the concept concepts of Jay quasing the gen- dungeon. Right. And, yep. you know, you, you've got a whole nother book right there. Um, but then they had, they spent more pages on, on their example and they didn't really do these things in the example. And so I feel like it's lost opportunity. Um and, you know, I, I get it. They were trying to finish their project and get it, you know, published and printed and out there. And that's that's great and everything. But I just, you know, look, again, this is kind of like the fifth edition DMG, right? When when the worst thing you can say is you really, really want more, That that's sort of, you know, it's a critique that's not a damning critique, right? It's just a acknowledgement of this right here is really good information and it really needs more. And that's just the pure fact of it. Yep. I, I absolutely agree with that. But just a, a chapter of examples on focusing combat outside of damage and considerations. Like I've written that blog post probably once every other year for mm-hmm. the last 11 right. years of blogging. Yep. Um, yep. Exactly. Like, uh, when we were doing pre-production for Dust to Dust, uh, this was a, one of the most important conversations that we were having. So in a, in a LARP, uh, instead of the boss fight, it's the field battle. That's your climactic moment. And we were all sort of too familiar with, okay, the shield wall lines up and they wait for the monsters to come break themselves on the shield wall. <laughs> and uh, Bob's your uncle, right? Um, and it just winds up being 
the players have proven they can do that. Congratulations. Let's prove something else. Let's go have a different challenge. We, we know you can beat this challenge and scaling up numbers to challenge you on that is not going to generate fun um, in, in a LARP setting. In a tabletop setting, it does a little bit better, I'll be honest, uh, because of the smaller number of characters and the, the different dynamics. But right. um, what I'm trying to get at is uh, needing encounter design uh, especially climactic design to do things other than um, be a damage race with the boss to see who it falls as your hit points first mm-hmm. is one of the least interesting single approaches to other stuff. And you know, monsters that just have other effects than damage that you need to avoid is a great start. Right. It doesn't have to be really complicated. I'm making it sound like it's some mysterious lost art it's not right right just um also if i'm honest watsi is bad about forgetting this at times <laughs> right you know I, I i say this with love but it's true yeah it's it's almost a nuance right it's a very nuanced way to design something and um you know i'm i'm not sure that it's it's so much that watsi forgets it i think it's that uh when you're an industry that relies on very quick turnaround of, of short text as short as possible because, you know, it costs money to put pages into a book uh, and you end up with um, uh, various skill levels of writers, some really great, some, well, so not writing, but actual encounter design, right? Sure. Some really yeah. great and some very rudimentary in some respects, you end up with a sort of mishmash. And this is one of this, as you said, this is not a novice, you know, early, DM thing to do. This is this takes a little bit of skill to be able to to work through it and make it part of just the way that things are designed. So, you know, and if there's not a, a directive to do that, then you know, I mean, yeah, I'm not blaming anybody for not for not having this when when they get you know a freelance job or they get asked for a piece of work and it's like you know you're on a short deadline and. You get very little guidance or the guidance you get doesn't actually address this aspect. Well, you're focused on the guidance you got and that's what you're fulfilling. So, yeah. Well, and uh, you know, I I don't actually want to speculate too much on uh, the project management situation at any company. Mm -hmm. Um, There are times when I I sort of feel like I've stepped behind the curtain and uh, seen project management issues, but uh, I also, have been on the other side of that curtain enough to know that sometimes that isn't the issue, even though it looks like it is actually yeah. something more complicated sure. Um, sure. that makes it not work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but touching on, uh, you know, one of the things you always say um, and also sort of agreeing with a conversation I had with a friend of the show, Jared Rasher today, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of pages of here's what I was going for that is just very direct to the DM is not wasted space. Right. You don't always have word count for it, but what you're trying to do is let the GM crawl inside your head for a second. Mm-hmm. You exactly. Know? 
Yeah. And that's my, that's, as you know, as you just said, like, that's one of my major complaints about some of these big 300 page adventure books that we're getting for D&D fifth edition is that there is no advice or direction for a DM who's reading that book and planning on running it. Like very few pieces of advice, very few call outs that say, hey, you know, maybe this seems like it doesn't fit your style. Here's what I was going for. Here's how you could adjust it if it's if you want a different feel to this. Or here's what why this was chosen this way. And if you want to change that, that's fine. Here are some suggestions, right? Or a lot of times just here's what we were going for is enough, right? Yep. But there's always a nice, if you add, but here's how you might change it to better fit your style. If your style is more cinematic, try to do this. If your style is more, you know, melee combat oriented, you might want to do this. If you're, if your party reaches this area and they are two levels below what you, you know, what this area indicates, here's what you can do, right? They're often good at saying, oh, if you need to level this up or down, do this, take away this yeah. creature, take away that creature. But that's not what I mean. I don't just mean like the pure numbers of the combat. I mean, the situation, right? And so, yeah, yeah that's what I, I think that would greatly help. Um, and I will note uh, on that note, this is one of the only pages in this whole entire book without a call out box, right? Without a sidebar of any kind. Mm -hmm. yep. Remember this book uses three sidebars, green, uh, blue, and red to tell you different things about what they're talking about. And this page doesn't have one. Well, yeah, that's, that's accurate. Um, <laughs> I, I, I clearly see that they were going for a thing with their layout of really consistently uh, spending about a quarter of the page on art. Mm -hmm. right? right. Sure. Um, and they would have had to eat into that and they didn't want to do that because they had all the stuff they want to say. I don't know. I, I feel you. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think, you know, this, yeah, this section needs some expansion because it's so good and it's such it, it, important right. information. Right. Um, and so I think that's going to bring us to the end of the chapter, which is the loot section. Yep. <laughs> um, we've already talked about loot to a considerable degree. Well, I mean, so treasure room is different from regular loot, right? So this loot is, is. about in part of as being part of encounter design, right? This actually isn't a different section. It's just the next sort of subheading under encounter design, sort of, because treasure rooms is its own sort of thing, right? The, their, their point about separating treasure room was that it's a, rarer kind of situation that requires its own narrative, you know, narrative thought and throughput. Whereas loot is just like, well, what, what kind of treasure does that creature have? Right. That's sort of the more generic version of loot. Yep. Yeah. So, but it has one of the best sidebars in it, the entire anything. Right. I mean, is, I've already waxed loquacious about this exact bit mm -hmm. in a previous episode. Right. Right. But guess what? I'm doing it again <laughs> because I love this so much. So the the amazing one, actually, they're both really good, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. But uh, the amazing, wonderful sidebar is the red sidebar for attached history to things players care about. I cannot say enough good about this. It is just making sure that the items players are getting are connected to the rest of your lore so that by wielding it, they are now 
cooler and they're a piece of that item's lore and it's a part of their lore. It's part of their heroic story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if that character dies and it passes on to another character's hands, their wielding of it was a chapter, right? Right. That That is amazing as a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the book phrases it as put your lore on their loot. And that's, that's a very good, you know, way to sum it up. Um, but um, they're also getting into a lot of the wonderful, subtle ways to uh, deliver clues and little tiny pieces of world connection. Uh, you know, in how you describe the loot, is it covered with uh, sigils that are from this ancient empire? Is it, is it tied back to that? Mm-hmm. Um, do NPCs react to it when they see it? I mean, one of the best pieces of loot I've ever handed out in any tabletop game is uh, when my wife's fighter in Arrakesh uh, killed these people. She had a, a bounty to hunt down and kill. And so she got Lady Sapphire's sword. And she loved that sword so much because when people saw it, they knew what it was just by looking at it. Mm. So it meant they knew who she killed. Nice. And also by burying that sword, she had something over the people who inherited command of that band of mercenaries. And she could really rub it, it rub it in the new commander's face. And that wound up being an amazing dynamic that, I couldn't have asked any more of just absolutely loved how that worked. Um, and it was because, you know, all this is a famous sword that she captured and everybody knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very cool. Very cool. Uh, sentient items also are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great pieces of uh, 13th pages written is that so many of your magic items are a little bit sentient. Um I think that's it's a really great thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of magic items being a new person to talk to every now and again, right. maybe someone who either is a chance for the GM to annoy the crap out of the players or to feed them new information or both. Um, I never do that in my D&D brief game. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. All right. Um, so tell me about that trident again. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the goat <laughs> and the coat. <laughs> Poor Son of a, yeah, he never gets any respect. Now, well, at least he gets some meals, <laughs> some good muffins. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, that's that's just this is an absolutely wonderful short bit of of guidance that you should always be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a huge key to making dust to dust work for us. Um, we, we, we live this advice having come to the same conclusion uh, in the design of, of the game. Uh, it isn't new advice, right? I, I feel like probably we've covered this in either the DMGR series or one of the DMGs. Right. Uh, but and people still lose track of it. And you mean like, I'm sure that we've covered it multiple times, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, 
like it's some of the some of the best technique that I can I can offer you, right? Um, because when your improved mechanics are also story, you have now appealed to everyone at the table. Yep. That that's that's both kinds. Yep. Right. Right. Um, and yes, okay. I know there are other players who are not going to feel anything about either of those things, but they're players that you are not necessarily going to be able to make feel anything. So I wouldn't worry about it. Is how I feel. Right. Um, but that that's an absolutely wonderful section. I, I think that their point that you don't tailor treasure to PCs is really important here uh, in the the main section talking about loot. Um, I think. Uh, you know, conversely, uh, you do hand out rumors of loot. And so if the player decides that thing is for them, or if they find a library and spend a bunch of time tracking down rumors of that one thing they want, then yeah, you make it possible. Yeah, of course. Like, right. it, you know, to, to use their example, um, you know, a dungeon which uh, rewards a great sort of dragon slaying uh, in the treasury's completion because the party's fighter would like one is an underdeveloped reason for that specific item to have been rewarded. They, they talk about the right way to do that. I would add one more right way to do that, uh, which is to say um, if the fighter knows good and well that they want this sort of dragon slaying and they go to a library and ask around about it and they do legwork to find rumors specifically of that thing, then by God, you find the right place in your lore for that thing and you start pointing them toward it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. That is not the same at all as placing lore based on what the players want. It, it is reacting uh, to their actions it, it, in game. Well, it's, it's guiding the world building on the, uh, parts of your map that are still here, they'd be dragons mm-hmm. uh, to like, let them find to let their quest succeed. Right. They defined a task for themselves and you told them what they had to do to get there. Congratulations. Right. And in the perfect world, right. In a, in a game that is really a fulfilling West March's game, the reason they're pursuing that and telling you that they want to go to the local sage and find out all they can about this, because maybe in their town, there's not a huge library. Yep. The reason they're doing that is because they got a hint of that on their first ever mission where they went out as the little lowly first level fighter. Yeah, for sure. And they found some piece of information that referenced some great, in this example, great dragon slaying sword. Right. And that stuck in the back of their mind. And four sessions later, they tell you, you know, I heard about this thing and I think I'm powerful enough now that I could actually go to the local sage and, and I have some money to give them so they can do some research for me and they could tell me things or, you know, and then they've turned it into their own personal quest. That's a perfect way to have that item be important in the setting. Yep. In other words, you don't just say, oh, well, oh, you went to the library, roll the D20. Oh, you heard about this great sword. Exactly. Now, not that that's not okay. I mean, you can do that fine. But it's much better if they hear inklings about it early on when it might not matter. They might not 
you know, they might not have ever heard of any dragons or anything, right? But that thing is piques their interest because it's a powerful item that they keep hearing about, just tiny tidbits. So maybe that thing should be sought out. Let's yep. go do it, right? And that's player-driven response. And so the DM then should be perfectly happy to make that happen and let that succeed if the if the party if the player gathers a group and says hey we're i want you all to help me we're going to go find this thing that's like the dream right like that's that's the way that this is supposed to be run in terms of west marches that that player said hey i want to do this mission let's go do it yep yep um so i also love the connecting at all sidebar Mm -hmm. uh, which right. I would sum up as, and in conclusion, also be a very good writer. <laughs> well, I think its point is just stay cognizant of, you know, it's 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 actually trying to make the case for why they made this chapter so long, right? Uh -huh. Why yeah. did they put the regional information and the faction information and the dungeon information all in one place? Well, because they're all supposed to be connected. They're not supposed to be separate pieces of an adventure. They're supposed to be integrated pieces of the world that the PCs are living in, which, you know, is decent. I mean, that's decent advice. That's true. That's how it should be. Um, it's kind of a nice last word for the chapter. Yep. Um, just, uh, okay, now take all this and make it all work together is perilously close to, then a miracle happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. And, and I mean, <laughs> I, I say that with so much love, but like, it's right. just hard. It's worthwhile every time, but let's not call it easy. Right. Yeah. Um, because no matter how much pre-production you put in, you're always going to need a little bit more, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Um, anyway, really strong chapter. Um, great, great points about just everything. This is a great manifesto on um, on your world building. Mm -hmm. I don't say. And it really goes a long way to flesh out the ideas introduced in the the introductory chapter, right? Um, yep. And it, it's sort of now. I think by the time you get to the end of this chapter, you might have. If you didn't know anything about West March's style gaming previously, by the time you get to the end of this chapter, which is, you know, uh, page 58. So now you've gotten 58 pages in, and I think you might be able to formulate a, a statement about what a West March's game is and what the important pieces of it are. Maybe right yep. now at the end of this chapter. Yep. You might not know how to do it. <laughs> right because i think it takes some practice and some trial and error uh and and the right types of players right um but i think i think this has now given a full idea of how it's supposed to be laid out or set up and then the next chapter is going to add the narrative aspects and provide information and, and advice about well how do we keep you know transmitting information and how do we make sure that this stays uh true to the idea of always telegraphing the truth to the to the players right to the pcs 
so so dear listeners um well actually so brandis do you have any any other remarks about the first three chapters of this book then because we're going to we're going to start chapter four in the next episode and so do you have any sort of closing remarks about what we've read so far um yeah i wish i'd written it (laughs) yeah um like i i don't know what to say like if i had the time i would want to write a blog entry about every separate paragraph of this book because i think that there's space for interesting commentary uh about how to build a world and build an adventure and build stakes and build uh, things to engage with, people to engage with, uh, all of this stuff. And we haven't even gotten to the chapter on narrative because here's the secret. They're all chapters on narrative. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, this fits in so hand in glove with everything that I think about uh, good game running, as I think is abundantly clear from uh, my commentary in these episodes so far, um, that you know this is just a book I wish I'd written. I couldn't necessarily write a West Marches book; mm-hmm. just uh, this works really, really well for GMing generally because they do talk about. Well, normally in GMing, this is true, but in West Marshes, this has to be different. So that's a carve out for this advice isn't useful all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. It's perfect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're telling you, you know, well, this advice is good all the time if we don't need that carve out. Right. Right. Um, so just the the experience and thoughtfulness that have gone into this text are very, very apparent to me. And I really enjoy that. Yeah, I do too. And I do think that a lot of the advice in it is widely applicable, even if you're not playing West March's game. It definitely is. I'm trying to keep my focus on the West March's style because of course it's a, you know, I like that style of game. It's a, it's a preferred setup for me. And it flows really well with the type of game that I like and with the additions that I play. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the advice is actually just generally applicable to any person playing a, a fantasy-based RPG or any RPG, but more specifically fantasy-based RPG. And providing ways to help you frame the different things going on, even if you are playing a a sort of more story-based or a more plot-based game that has an overarching, you know, set of things that happen and a timeline and all these things that West March's games don't have, you can still pull information out of here. A large portion of it is still applicable to those types of games. It's just that we're framing it in a very specific West March's style for, for this particular setup and conversation because that's how the book does it. But it really is like a DMG too. Because it's trying to give different information about here's let's approach this a different way, and that maybe you can use that in your game. And just because I haven't specifically played in a West Marches game, I am slanting my commentary more toward um, DMing generally. But I still find it so applicable that 
there's no real loss there to me. Yeah, sure. It does it does really paint the picture of why a West Marshes game would be attractive mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And there's been a ton of conversation in my, you know, episode listening friends group about so if I were to run West Marches, would you well the scheduling is out well, but you kind of <laughs> right. Yeah. You get it. Yeah. And they will listen to this episode and know they've just been called out. <laughs> So, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah, whatever, that's fine. Um, but, you yeah, know, and I think, I think the different points of view are good, right? Like I appreciate that you bring in the more, you know, uh, you, you bring in some of the computer cause they call out, you know, some of the, some of the inspiration and, and, and uh, different ideas in this book are directly related to certain computer RPGs and to certain other editions and to certain different types of styles of game. I think it's really good. Right. Well, it's in, it's incredibly convenient to have a video game experience that you could absorb in um, twenty to oh, two hundred hours, mm-hmm. instead of needing to get your friends together for uh, two to four hours uh, every week or every two weeks right. for right. Uh, two to four years. You know, right. Right. one of these is uh, an over- overwhelming amount of time, and the other is an even more overwhelming amount of time. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, but. You know, it also gives you visuals to play with um, how you felt while you were getting your teeth kicked in by Starscourge or Don, you know, whatever. Right, right. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm absolutely the kind of person who always has a background process running in my mind of how can I use this in gaming? Mm-hmm. Um, I understand there are people like that, but also how. Right. How do you do, how, how does your brain work? Why is, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I do. I do that quite often. I almost always can find a way to relate something going on in my life that I'm doing or that I'm interacting with or someone I ran into or whatever with something that can happen in a game or that I can use to sort of frame something in a game or that I can use as an encounter. <laughs> right. Uh, And I don't mean a combat encounter necessarily. I just mean, you know, something happening to an NPC or to the party or something that's a rumor or, you know, like there's always something, right? I think that's part of being a DM, right? Is how could I use this in my game? And I think that different DMs do that on a daily basis to a different extent um, every time, you know, every person is going to be different. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think... That is going to end the episode for us. So, uh, Sir Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Uh, I write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. How about you, Sam? Well, you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find me on the internet at rpgmusings.com. And you can find me on the Tome Show Discord, or you can find me on Tome Show episodes. And so I think that's going to bring us out. Anything else that you want to say? Uh, yeah, it's been a, been a pretty political week here. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just going to say that Reproductive rights are absolutely necessary human rights. And I don't know how else to put that. I don't know. Taking away reproductive rights infringes upon my religious beliefs. Yep. I, I don't know how to put that any other way as well. So I think we'll have to leave it at that because um, 
there's a lot to say, but this is not the podcast for it. So we can, we can leave it there. All right. Other than that, audience, we hope you have a uh, wonderful day. 